0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. After the U.S. Supreme Court chose not to hear a case last week, Colorado's experiment with recreational marijuana now faces no major lawsuits. That's according to Professor Sam Kamen. He teaches constitutional and criminal law at the University of Denver. The high court diffused a challenge brought by neighboring states Nebraska and Oklahoma. Sam, welcome back to the program.
1: Thanks. It's good to be back.
0: So only a few months ago, there were four different lawsuits over the legalization of recreational pot here. Each one has been dismissed or declined by the high court. Before we get to the specifics, let's get your reaction generally. Um, Is this just a lull or do you think some kind of tide has turned?
1: Well, I think that on the ground, the tide uh, has been turning for a while, that we uh, have seen sort of each year a few more states legalizing marijuana. Um, and I think that, you know, whether we're in a lull now or not, uh, I think probably most people will sit this one out and see what happens with the presidential election in November.
0: That could change things depending on the, out- the outlook of the administration. What was the crux of the Nebraska-Oklahoma case? They sued Colorado and, again, Supreme Court justices last week decided not to
1: hear it. That's right. They were saying that they were facing increasing policing and uh, court costs attributable to marijuana being smuggled into their and through their state uh, from Colorado and that this was uh, causing them harms. And they asked the Supreme Court to tell Colorado that we couldn't regulate and tax marijuana.
0: So were they challenging uh, Colorado's approach to marijuana fundamentally or just saying you weren't quite doing it Right.
1: Uh, it's not quite clear. They, they asked that the Supreme Court invalidate all the, the regulations here. So ah. it, it, was, it was a pretty frontal attack. And what was interesting was they weren't saying that Colorado uh, couldn't, criminal, couldn't uh, legalize marijuana. They agreed that Colorado as a sovereign state can legalize whatever it wants, um, but that uh, the tax and regulate regime that we have was encouraging conduct that remains criminal under federal law. Okay,
0: NPR's Kirk Sigler went to Nebraska last year and talked with a sheriff there whose department confiscated a lot of marijuana. And uh, Kirk told me that he saw 75 pounds of pot in boxes and buckets in an evidence room in Dual County, Nebraska.
2: Most of the marijuana in that room uh, that he was showing me there was coming from Colorado. He estimated about ninety percent of it was coming from Colorado um, and you can tell because a lot of it is labeled um, These are packages coming from dispensaries that people either intentionally brought across the state line or didn 't know that they couldn 't bring it across the state line so they can you know track all of this. Uh, the sheriff was also concerned about all of the uh, edible products. Uh, He had amassed a huge quantity in several boxes in that room.
0: And in the complaint, attorneys for Nebraska and Oklahoma said that if Colorado's legal marijuana industry were based south of the U.S. border, the federal government would prosecute it as a drug cartel. Clearly,
1: the federal government doesn't see the pot industry that way here. Why not? Well, the Obama administration has concluded that if states are uh, meeting eight federal criteria, they are uh, they will be allowed to uh, regulate marijuana instead of uh, criminalizing it. What and are a few of those eight? You don't have to give us all of them, but sure, they have to do with marijuana not being a front for the selling of other drugs, for drugs not being sold to children, uh, guns, organized crime not being involved, those sorts of things, sort of public safety and welfare concerns.
0: What's fascinating is that I believe the Solicitor General for the United States wrote a brief on behalf of Colorado, uh, pleading essentially with the U.S. Supreme Court not to hear the Nebraska-Oklahoma
1: case. Yeah, the the procedural history is a little complicated. The suit was brought by Oklahoma and Nebraska against Colorado, and then the Supreme Court asked the Solicitor General to weigh in and asked, you know, well, the the states are saying that, that what Colorado is doing is preempted by federal law. What does the federal government think about that? And the federal government, while not explicitly saying much about preemption, said this is not a good case for you to take. Mm. There are other venues in which this can be litigated. Uh, We don't think this is a good use of the court's time.
0: But again, this is a reflection of the current administration. And who knows about the next one? Uh, Colorado officials said after the decision that Oklahoma and Nebraska could still file suit in district court. Would you, you expect them to do that?
1: I don't have any insight into, into what they're planning. They, legally, they have the opportunity to do that. They received a fair amount of criticism, uh, both from within their states and, and outside. Um, that is from, Nebraska and Oklahoma. Yeah. Um, you know that, that This was not a very pro-states rights lawsuit, that uh, for one state to be telling another state, no, you're not free to do that because we don't like it or that's different from our policy, uh, didn't seem consistent with uh, a lot of the other views that the attorney generals in those states were, were taking. That are fairly conservative. Yes. Yeah.
0: Um, as we said, this was one of four legal challenges to recreational marijuana in Colorado, uh, which you and I actually discussed a year ago. Uh, my have think- have things have changed. Um, two of the others accused specific businesses in Colorado of organized crime or racketeering. Uh, what happened in those cases?
1: One of them was voluntarily dismissed last year after uh, a number of, of settlements were reached. Uh, the other was recently dismissed by the judge down in Pueblo uh, – or the, the one about Pueblo was recently dismissed uh, when he, the the judge asserted that despite giving the plaintiffs a number of chances to plead their cases – Uh, with more specificity, they had demonstrated they were unable to do so. And so he dismissed the case.
0: One of the cases was out of Frisco, I believe. That's right. An anti-crime group and a hotel there sued over a dispensary and a grow operation that was planned for near the hotel. Uh, As a result, the marijuana shop closed, according to its website, and banks that did business with it paid $70,000 in a settlement. So it may not be a pure legal victory for marijuana opponents, but it's something of a victory outside the courts, circumstantially, I guess.
1: I think that's exactly right. I've said from the beginning that I think these lawsuits will be almost impossible for the plaintiffs to prevail in. I think they will have a great deal of trouble demonstrating that they've been harmed and been harmed in a way that's directly attributable to marijuana businesses. But legal action is expensive to fight. Exactly. And and we saw that most particularly with the Frisco lawsuit, um, the plaintiffs got most of what they wanted before a, a judge ever closely examined the suit. And uh, the business uh, that they were suing never ended up opening. And, and the owner of that business incurred a great deal in costs and ultimately was not able to, to open his business.
0: OK, so we've gone through three of the four lawsuits. The final one is that uh, a group of Colorado sheriffs, I think six of them, sued Governor John Hickenlooper. They argued that legalization had forced them to disobey federal law. Obviously, marijuana is still illegal federally. The sheriffs, unlike Colorado's neighbors, Nebraska and Oklahoma, uh, actually challenged legalization itself, not just the uh, the legal regime. Um, but it was dismissed, that, that particular suit.
1: That suit was dismissed. And honestly, it was the one without with the least legal merit from the beginning. Uh, it's quite clear that that no one can sue to force Colorado to keep uh, criminal laws on its books, that no one can sue to force Colorado to enforce the Controlled Substances Act. The state is uh, a sovereign and, and can make those choices. Uh, and I think this was sort of the least surprising uh, loss for marijuana opponents.
0: It's amazing. A lot of them got a lot of coverage at the front end and uh, sort of died with a very soft whimper, I guess.
1: Yeah, that you know, this it, it tells you something about litigation and and the way that it's uh, covered in the press, which is these suits all made a big splash when they were filed, and then, as you point out, sort of uh, went away with a whimper, uh, which we're trying to put on a bullhorn right now. Um, there are, of course, other states
0: that have legalized marijuana. I think of, of Washington and Alaska. I wonder if you look at those states at all and and uh, monitor for suits that could affect Colorado and whether you see anything if you do.
1: There's nothing really looming on the on the horizon right now. I haven't seen the same sort of litigation in those states that we've had here. We were, while we in Washington passed on the same day, we have sort of gotten further in our regulatory process. Our industry is more mature than those there. I get why people would sue here first, um, but I think the results here probably aren't going to lead to a flood of new litigation. All right.
0: And you'll have your eyes certainly on the presidential race and how that affects this issue.
1: Exactly. And not just the presidential race, but the races in the the states as well. Marijuana legalization and medical marijuana are going to be on the ballot in a number of states. We already have 23 of the 50 states that have marijuana legal for some purposes. If that number turns into 28 or 30, I think that makes the political realities in Washington quite different, whoever becomes president. Sam, thanks. Pleasure.
0: Sam Kamen teaches criminal and constitutional law at the University of Denver. Coming up, his name is on buildings. There's a holiday in his honor. What Cesar Chavez contributed to Colorado. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Decades before Yes We Can became Barack Obama's campaign slogan, the Spanish version, Si Se Puede, was a rallying cry for farm workers led by activist Cesar Chavez. These are children at a West Denver elementary school chanting the slogan a while back. A few years after Chavez began pushing for better conditions at California farms, the idea took root in Colorado's fields. Ramon Del Castillo, now a professor at Metro State, worked with Chavez in Colorado in the 1970s. Del Castillo later led efforts to create state and local holidays in Chavez's honor. The holiday marks his birthday, March 31st, but governments recognize it on different days. Denver, for instance, honored it yesterday. Del Castillo spoke with Andrea Dukakis.
3: Ramon, thanks for being with us.
4: Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
3: Cesar Chavez founded the United Farm Workers and became famous for leading boycotts against the sale of grapes and lettuce in California.
4: Why did he come to Colorado? Well, he came to Colorado because Colorado is a a large agribusiness in the state. There were lettuce fields and all kinds of different uh, fields that were in southern Colorado and northern Colorado, and they were employing farm workers at that time. So his union was about all farm workers. It didn't make a difference uh, what group you belonged to or whatever the case was. He was in support of trying to form a union. And what were the conditions like for the workers in Colorado? They were the same as they were in other places. Uh, There were Uh, Unsanitary conditions in the fields. At times they didn't have restrooms. The labor was being exploited. They got dirt wages and uh, they were being sprayed with pesticides at that time as well. And who were these farm workers? Farm workers, by definition, follow the crops. So they were from different parts of the southwest and other parts of the country that would get in their vans and get in their automobiles, and they would follow the crops from Michigan into Colorado to Texas to California and other states that had big agribusiness going on.
3: Was there something about Chavez's background that propelled him to
4: advocacy? What really guided him was his passion and his love for people that had been exploited. That's his background. He had come from a working-class farmworker background, and when he got out of the military, I mean, they had lost their property in Arizona, and his family had been relegated to farmworker status, and he then clearly saw exactly how they were being exploited.
3: And what specifically did Chavez do
4: for workers in Colorado? Well, he introduced the United Farm Workers uh, Organizing Committee, the, the union, and he challenged folks to join the union. But he also came to Colorado to appeal to the consciousness of the urban people, asking them to support the boycotts that he had called on grapes, lettuce, gallo wine, and a variety of other products that were employing and exploiting farm workers.
3: Did things get measurably better for workers uh, after he came and got involved in Colorado?
4: I believe so, because farm workers in general had been abandoned by law the the labor the wagner act prohibited farm workers from collective bargaining and what he wanted was for them to have a choice about the union that they wanted to be represented by but also involvement in the collective bargaining process which simply means that you have the right to choose a contract and the working conditions that you're willing to to be employed from the owner of the fields so that's really what he brought was he He brought the consciousness of of the importance of unions to working-class people that had been started since the latter part of the 1800s.
3: And the Wagner Act, when did it
4: pass? I believe the Wagner Act passed in 1936, and what that did is that didn't allow farm workers to collective bargain.
3: Eventually, you came to know Chavez. How did that happen?
4: I met Chavez the first time. It would have been about 1973, at the time I was had been appointed through the United Mexican-American Student Organization, UMAS, to spearhead the lettuce boycott on the college campus and work with other leaders in northern Colorado. So our, our function, our goal at that time, was to get head lettuce off campus. At the time, we did it through a variety of methods, and one of them was to debate the Teamsters Union that had signed sweetheart contracts with with the growers and with uh and the, and therefore not giving workers the right to choose and Chavez came down to talk to us about our organizing what we were doing he came down as a guest speaker but we spent time with him because at that time we were all running the boycott collectively as a as a group
3: and what struck you most about what Chavez was saying at the time
4: nonviolence i had been drafted in 1969 i spent a short stint in the military got out on a on a bad leg and saw what violence could do at the time that I was in. And when he came and he spoke about nonviolence as a an effective method of uh, creating social change, it, it just struck my heart real, real deep and made me realize that there were ways of getting involved without having to harm others.
3: I understand one of the means he used of protesting was fasting. How effective was that?
4: he fasted for 25 days in 1968 it was a spiritual message that in order to achieve social justice you had to give up yourself and i think he did it through fasting which at times very dangerous for his health i went on a fast during the time i was in college it was for 17 days and it was extremely difficult i had to get off of it because i knew i had to finish school for one thing i do remember one time doing a presentation in a class during the fast. And I completely lost my memory. And the professor Mm. had to come up and say, are you okay? She knew that I was on the fast. And I said, I don't remember.
3: Do you feel like it accomplished something?
4: I think people were aware of it. It, We used it as a a tool to make people aware of the severity of the uh, oppression that farm workers were, were dealing with. And it was a strong message that this is a critical issue that needs to be dealt with in American society.
3: You've done a lot to honor Chavez, including uh, now there's a holiday in Denver and a statewide
4: holiday. How are those observed? Well, the statewide holiday is a floating holiday. And what that simply means is that if you work for the state and you decide to take Cesar Chavez's birthday off, you have to trade it for another one. In the city and county of Denver, it's an official holiday Everybody gets off. They close down everything, and it usually falls on a Monday that's closest to his birthday. So it's celebrated in different ways in several states, but in this state, that's uh, the form that it takes.
3: I wonder if you think Chavez would be pleased today with the status of farm workers across the country and in Colorado.
4: I don't think Cesar Chavez was ever pleased. I think that his struggle was about social justice, and, and every time that there would be victories, There there would always be resistance from other forces that he would have to go back and contend with. He was constantly being uh, called upon to go to court, to deal with injunctions, to deal with farm workers, a lot of different kinds of issues. So until they would be equal to other workers, I don't think that he would have been totally pleased.
3: Ramon, thanks for being here.
4: The pleasure was mine. Thank you very much. Ramon Del
0: Castillo chairs the Chicana Chicano Studies Department at Metropolitan State University of Denver. He spoke with Andrea Dukakis about Cesar Chavez, whose birthday is the 31st. Still to come, a big Colorado company will merge, move its headquarters abroad, and save a lot in taxes. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado will lose the headquarters of a big company this year. Englewood based IHS, a research firm and data provider, announced last week it will merge with London based Market and move its main offices to London. This is an example of an inversion, says Washington Post reporter Renee Merle, where a company gives up its U.S. citizenship and saves on taxes. IHS will tell you the move is about more than that. And uh, Renee is on the phone with us. Welcome to the program.
5: Oh, thank you so much for having me.
0: So IHS says some key jobs will stay in Colorado, but they're not sure how many yet. How much will this merger save IHS in U.S. corporate taxes?
5: Well, it's not completely clear yet, but it'll be at least, from um, my research, like $200 million. Um, and, and they're going to save it in, a, in a several different ways. One, they're moving overseas to a jurisdiction with lower a lower tax rate. The United States has one of the highest tax rates in the developed world, 35%. It's much lower in most places overseas, including London. Also, um, IHS is one of um, you know a number of companies that has been doing something, what I call just building a large stash of overseas profits. So typically, if you are a company, you earn... um, some profits overseas you bring it back to the u.s. and then you pay the u.s. taxes on it
0: and they have not been doing so
5: they have not have not been doing so they've been leaving those profits overseas um, where they won't be taxed in the u.s. a lot of companies are hoping that the Obama administration the Treasury will um, put in a tax holiday so they won't have to pay as high a taxes and Congress hasn't acted on that and so they leave them overseas by moving its headquarters overseas um, uh, IHS can avoid paying the U.S. tax on that and get easier access to that money. And in the future, um, when they make um, earn profits overseas, they're going to be able to avoid um, you know having to pay a U.S. tax on it as well.
0: And Renee, you contrasted the U.S. corporate tax rate, which is about thirty-five percent, with that of other countries. Uh, you report that in the U.K. it's in the low to mid twenties, so a substantial yes. difference there. And yet, IHS will say this is not primarily about taxes. IHS. And Market say the deal is quote a strategic merger driven by strong business logic that it will expand their customer base and save money in other ways. Uh, they even dispute that this is an inversion if you use the Treasury Department's definition. so why why do you plainly call this an inversion? you and and uh, many other reporters, I'll say, help us understand that and what an inversion is perhaps.
5: So, sure. IHS is really kind of hanging its hat on a technicality. You know, to be considered an inversion under the um, technical treasury rules, the um, U.S. company must own 60% or more of the, um, you know, the new company created through the merger or the acquisition. Um, In this deal, IHS will come under Um, under that cap at, like, I believe, 56 or 57%. It's the same thing that Pfizer did when it did its big inversion. You know, they made sure that their ownership stake would be at, like, 56%. Um, It's what Johnson Controls, another U.S. company that's moving to Ireland, um, did. They made sure they came under the 60% cap. But it's still an inversion if your intent is that a company moves its headquarters from the U.S., a high ju- tax jurisdiction, to a place where their tax rate will be lower. And that this, comp- that this move puts the company in a place where it will be able to um, gain access to overseas profits that they so far have been leaving overseas specifically because they don't want to have to pay a high U.S. tax on it. So, yes, I just is right in the most technical of terms, uh, under the Treasury Department's, IRS's definition, this does not qualify as an inversion. But for to any tax expert, to any corporate tax strategy person, this is an inversion. That This is the intent of the deal. You mentioned this. Uh, Go ahead. I was going to say, and, and yes... Um, they, um, they, there are other reasons that they're doing it. It makes sense. Um, but the, they didn't, as part of this deal, have to move their headquarters out of Colorado. They could have left their um, their headquarters there. And, you know, especially since they're going to be the, the larger company in the deal. Um, they could have clearly left their um, headquarters in the U.S., but there's a tax benefit to moving it overseas.
0: You mentioned those other deals. Uh, Johnson yeah. Controls with uh, Tyco, uh, that merger, yeah. and then Pfizer with Allergan. And yes, you've pointed to um a, an interesting i don't know if it's a strange aspect of this deal which is that the smaller fish is eating yeah. the larger one that is to say market is the smaller company and it will absorb the larger ihs uh, again based in for now englewood colorado yeah. is that is that unusual help me put put your business sense on that for me
5: no that that is a, that's another telltale sign that this is an inversion um back you know Inversions have been around for decades. They kind of come and go in popularity. Uh, this is a period we're in right now where they're becoming more popular again. And it used to be that a, um, an inversion would include basically a company setting up a subsidiary in Barbados or <laughs> wherever it is, that constituted no more than a, a, a mailbox, and then inverting so that that company became the, the headquarters. And so, and those are called naked inversions. And so, those kinds of inversions don't happen anymore. But you still have deals like you have with IHS, with Pfizer, with Johnson Controls, where the larger company takes a um, like to take, say, step back to um, to the smaller company so that they can move their headquarters and take advantages of the tax um, strategies that they'll now have.
0: So, Renee, it sounded like the Treasury Department has put in some rules to try to prevent mm-hmm. inversions, but that, boy, they, they aren't necessarily all that effective.
5: Yeah, so the Treasury Department's rules have been somewhat effective. I, I know that they it has stopped some, um, some deals, but, you know, what IHS, Pfizer, Johnson Controls show is that corporate America has figured out a way around it. And that way around it is... Um, you know, coming under that 60% cap that we talked about previously. So, it, it, you know, it's probably, it stopped a few deals, but it hasn't really, you know, closed the door on these deals and companies are feeling more and more confident that they can get around them. Um, Treasury said that they continue to look at ways to do this, but that is really up to Congress to make substantial progress on this issue. And Congress, you know, which is also disgusted by these um, inversions, just really hasn't done anything about them.
0: This has been fodder, certainly, for the presidential campaigns. Uh, I, I just want to push back a little bit. Are mm-hmm. are inversions necessarily a bad thing, as as some politicians would have you believe? That is to say, if if I'm an inve- if I'm an investor in IHS or mm-hmm. in, in market, and and the company in which I have invested has just saved a boatload of money, mm-hmm. uh, doesn't that you know lift some up?
5: You know, I I think that's a really good point. And people should remember, even as we talk about inversions and they're such a controversial issue, it's not illegal. Um, And, you know, if Congress wanted to make it illegal, it could, but it hasn't. And um, it... For a lot of companies, it just makes good business sense. If you're trying to, you know, give your shareholders the biggest um, profit possible, lowering your taxes is one way to go. It's uh, it's like almost a, it's not a, a game, but it's like a, a game of finesse. I want to say, being able to massage the corporate tax code. And That's what it's there for. You have lots of tax attorneys around Washington and New York who can help you lower your taxes. And none, you know, you know, obviously you have to. Uh, color within the lines, but you know an inversion in itself is not illegal. Um, you can look at even IHS's um, uh, stock since they announced this um, deal. Their stock is up. Um, you know when Pfizer talks to its investors, they want to make sure this deal is going to happen because it'll lower um, lower their taxes and give them more money to do research, more money so they can invest in other things. You know, um, so uh, to the extent that. Um, you know, obviously some, uh, I know that both Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders and even Donald Trump have come down on companies for doing inversions. One is not illegal, and two, in a lot of cases, it probably just makes good business sense.
0: You're speaking with Renee Murrell of the Washington Post. She covers Wall Street, and uh, you know, I suppose there's the the question of stopping inversions by perhaps making them illegal or changing, uh, I guess, some of the ownership rules. But there's also the question of should the United States lower its corporate tax rates mm-hmm. so that they're they're not so attractive? And um, where where does that stand in general?
5: So it's interesting. This is one of the few issues that both Republicans and Democrats in Congress agree on. They all believe that the 35% the corporate tax rate in the U.S. is too high. Then, But where they come to loggerheads is how do we address that? One, there isn't a number. No one can seem to agree on, okay, it shouldn't be 35%, so what should it be? Um, should it be 20%? Should it be 25%? No, there isn't much agreement on that. But two, should this be a part of an overall overhaul of the corporate tax code, which would be really complicated and take quite a while, or should we just go in and do uh, one thing and lower the corporate tax, um, tax rate and just start there? And so there's like different opinions on that. It's, you know, uh, it's a bipartisan issue that the corporate tax rate is too high, but how to address it, that's where things kind of fall apart.
0: Very briefly, Renee, in just the last few seconds, um, do you expect more inversions in the near future?
5: I believe so. Uh, even though this has become a kind of a, a political hot potato during the presidential campaign, um, I think that companies are starting to feel more comfortable that Treasury isn't going to do much more about it. Congress, obviously, isn't going to act. And, you know, the candidates can talk all they want. But if it makes big um, good business sense, I think we're going to see uh, more of these deals coming down the pike.
0: Thank you for explaining something that could be very uh, sticky and thorny so clearly for us. Thank you. Renee Merle. She covers Wall Street for The Washington Post. Englewood-based IHS expects the deal to be complete later this year with Market, based in London. And for a link to Merle's reporting, you can head to CPRnews.org. A child's risk for obesity is related to his or her address. That is what a study finds out of the University of Colorado, Denver. Researcher Adam Lippert says adolescents who grow up in poor neighborhoods are more likely to become or remain obese.
1: But only if they remain in those low-income neighborhoods throughout their transition to adulthood. He adds that young
0: people who live in more affluent neighborhoods or who move away from poor ones saw their risk of obesity decrease. But there are ways to break the cycle for low-income children.
1: This would include increasing access to physical activity amenities. It would include modifying the food environment and bringing more fresh foods and available foods into these types of communities. And another way to intervene on this is to help empower families living in low-income neighborhoods to move into better places.
0: Last summer, CPR's health reporter John Daly met a family in a poor neighborhood. They had joined a special Get Fit program to fight childhood obesity. Argelia Sanchez faces a big dilemma. Her family is on food assistance, and by
2: mid-month, she says, that money is gone. They have to decide what kind of food they can afford to eat. She says through a translator that even when they can't afford fresh fruits and vegetables... Her kids don't want to eat them. I tell them it's healthy. I make
3: salads, and they say they don't want
2: it. Her oldest, Yuritsa, a 14-year-old with glasses and braided black pigtails, nods her head. And would you say that she's right? Is that true?
5: Yes, 100% right.
2: So today, Helia and her three kids join other families who are also on public assistance at a supermarket in Aurora. Um,
3: we're going to start our grocery store tour today.
5: The tour is part
2: of a Get Fit boot camp. Euritza and her siblings were invited to join after a visit with their pediatrician at Rocky Mountain Youth Clinics. The doctors suggested the program because the kids struggle with their weight.
3: The goal here um, at the
2: grocery store is to teach how to eat healthy healthy on a tight budget. The produce section is the first stop. They compare types of lettuce and prices on grapes. grapes Nearby, the kids go on a scavenger hunt looking for orange, green, and red fruits and vegetables. Our Helia's daughter, Yuritza, says often she and her siblings don't make nutritious choices.
1: We usually don't like the food, so we usually say eel and then just go. Like sometimes my mom buys um, ramen noodles just because sometimes we're in a hurry and that's like the fastest thing to make.
2: She so, says she and her brother, Giovanni, have to make changes.
1: It worries me a lot and I'm scared like my brother's going to turn out like me.
2: Yuritza's struggle with weight is not uncommon. About a fifth of kids in Colorado are overweight or obese. For poor children, the figure is one in three. It's even higher for those who are black, Hispanic, or uninsured. Dr. Shale Wong is a professor of pediatrics at Children's Hospital Colorado. She says many families don't have access to healthy, affordable foods. Poor neighborhoods often don't have stores nearby that sell healthy choices. Low-income parents can work long hours, so cheap junk food is often the first choice.
3: There is a definitive connection between low-income, hunger, and obesity.
2: Children's and a number of other Colorado institutions have launched programs to help. There are cooking classes to teach how to make healthy meals. There are efforts in schools where kids can earn discounts at stores by developing good habits. Side. On a recent sunny Saturday, another Get Fit group warms up for the Colfax 5K. Brianna Ramirez and her 7-year-old daughter Evelyn are here This is Evelyn's first race. She proudly (laughs) reads the number on her bib.
1: Two, one, five, three, four.
2: Colorado's kids rank in the middle nationally when it comes to physical activity. Poor children are far less likely to be physically active. Families in this program learn to work exercise into their regular schedules. Ramirez says she signed up Evelyn for this class after a checkup.
3: My daughter's weight is an issue. She is overweight. And I just want to make her healthy, get her fit. So that's why I joined. I'm really concerned about her.
5: Three, two,
2: one, go! Evelyn and her mom take off with thousands of others. An hour later, they cross the finish line, arms in the air.
1: My goal is that I keep exercising and eating healthy.
2: Deb Fetterspiel manages the Healthy Kids program at Children's. She says programs that teach healthy habits
5: are about prevention. Every day, they're going to be faced with choices. How do we equip them with the tools and skills that they need to make those healthy choices? Children's Dr. Shale
2: Wong says only a small number of the state's poor kids participate in these programs. They're relatively new and not in many communities. However, Wong is convinced they do work.
0: There's every reason to believe we're starting to turn the corner. And if we ease up on the gas at this point... There's every reason to believe that we will reverse and that the trends will get worse again.
3: 59 grand.
2: At the supermarket, the Get Fit kids learn how to read a nutrition label. 14-year-old Yaritza says the messages about how to eat right and exercise are starting to sink in.
1: I don't want to be like a mom that can't run with their kids when they're older.
2: Changing unhealthy habits is hard, she says, but will be worth it. I'm John Daly,
0: Colorado Public Radio News. And still ahead, do athletes who eat together win together? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. When Bijou Thomas figured out he wasn't quite good enough to be a pro cyclist, he turned to his other passion, cooking. Before long, Thomas was preparing food for cyclists who did go pro, And a few years ago, he started writing cookbooks for everyday athletes. His latest with Alan Lim of Scratch Labs in Boulder is called Feed Zone Table, Family-Style Meals to Nourish Life and Sport. And Bijou, welcome to the program.
6: Uh, Thank you, Ryan. Thanks for having me. What family do you picture when you say family-style cookbook? (laughs) The whole idea was, you know, you look at a lot of athletes, whether it's cycling or anything, we spend so much time just off in a... On the road by ourselves, but why not eat together? And uh, Alan and I both grew up in immigrant families where we had every single meal together. And there's something to be said for that. So we kind of wanted to return not just the whole idea of families, but why not as teams and people that are competing and pursuing whatever, you know, getting together. To what advantage? Well, uh... At the end of the day, it was about returning some joy to the whole idea of eating. Instead of just looking at calories and numbers and fat and all the macros, uh, there's a big chunk of what we discovered. Athletes perform better if they're happy. And they're, uh, you know, there's a few points in the day when you can actually sit down together with your teammates and your friends and your families and have a conversation. Even the humblest of food, whether it's rice with some eggs, oatmeal, whatever it is, it didn't really matter. The guys still performed better. They had a better result. You know, the overall experience turns out to be better for everyone involved. So
0: there's research to back that this kind of social fuel, that's how you describe it in the book, might actually improve one's performance?
6: Yeah. If you look through the book, Alan's gone uh, quite, I mean, it took us about a year to get the book wrapped up. The food part was the easiest. Uh, Alan spent a lot of time doing research historical research over you know the overall benefits of people eating together and then you know how that could translate into everyday people's lives. But what we know for sure is that eating in a corner by yourself uh, doesn't really <laughs> it doesn't feel good, it doesn't taste good, it doesn't really lead to anything. And whether you're an athlete, whether you're an attorney, whether you're you know whatever your day gig is the idea of bringing some joy back to the table was the bigger story that we wanted to tell with the book. Or even bringing
0: a table back to the table. Yes. Because I do picture athletes right off in a corner opening some kind of nutrition packet and joylessly eating. Yeah.
6: And that's what you want to change here. Yeah. We grew up in in the era of, uh, you know, a lot of uh, food packed into little packages with the idea that they were super nutrient dense and awesome for you. But uh, You know, they were kind of joyless.
0: So you were born in India. Your cooking reflects that. Yep. You own uh, Bijou's Curry Shop in Denver, and uh, I understand two new locations are opening this month, another in Denver, one in Boulder. Uh, We have some questions from listeners about curry that we're going to put to you a bit later. But how does your experience with Indian food translate to cooking for athletes? Because I don't necessarily think of Indian food as, you know, good food to eat right before a workout. You know, I think we perceive it at
6: least as heavy and spicy. Sure. Uh, That actually comes from my own life of trying to ride and race as a kid growing up in Colorado eating the food at home, which you know, I'd end up with heartburn or I'd end up bloated or I'd end up sleepy in the middle of the. And so I started experimenting with my own food. But the beauty of it is the South Indian food that I grew up eating and which is what we serve at the restaurant. Dishes like what? Um, well, in South India where I'm from, we eat a lot of beef. We eat a ton of vegetables and a ton of fish. And we, the restaurant we have downtown, Little Curry Shop, is a very, very small menu, just a few things. They're in bowls. They're really easy um, to understand and grasp. Uh, we do a really spicy chicken dish, a spicy vindaloo. We do some beef and we do some amazing uh, vegetarian stuff. The food that I grew up eating, unlike what most of us think of as you know the buffet food, there isn't any cream or butter or any thickeners added to it. So the food is really bright and vibrant and bursting with flavors, which then ties into the feed zone and our cooking for athletes, which... The intent was to keep the food really simple and delicious and bright, a lot of colors and textures and flavors. It's
0: interesting because in the book you say that there should really be no fundamental difference in how athletes and non-athletes eat. I mean, I think we've created in many ways this kind of bifurcated world – where athletes are are gods and eat one way and and us mere mortals eat another. Uh, But you're trying to blow that out of the water in some respects.
6: Yeah, I think uh, it makes more sense when we complicate things. And at the end of the day, athletes are just normal people who train a lot more, who work out a lot more or whatever their thing is. So for us, it was just simpler to treat athletes in whatever their pursuit was as normal human beings just like us. So we went around creating recipes and ideas for food with everyday common ingredients, stuff you can buy anywhere on the planet, and make a really simple dish with two or three steps. And the only thing, the difference for athletes are the calories, how much they consume, the time of the day they consume. Beyond that, the food should be just normal everyday food.
0: Back to your experience uh, as a young man, you didn't have refrigeration or electric (laughs) stoves where you grew up in India.
6: Yeah. How does that influence the type of cooking you do today? Uh, well, uh, I was—I come from Kerala, which is in the south end of India. Uh, we didn't, you know, our homes back then very simple, very simple, humble upbringings. No running water, no electricity, uh, you know. But that's what we knew, so it was amazing. The beauty of that is it makes you really creative, and it makes you, you know, kind of like a MacGyver when it comes to figuring out how to get stuff done. And, you know, along the way, Alan and I have cooked for groups in the middle of nowhere, out of hotels, out of the back of pickup trucks for 50, 100, 500 people. That's where growing up in the jungle, (laughs) you learn, you get your training there, you learn how to cook. So
0: you came to Colorado, and as you said, you you did some competing in cycling on a junior level.
6: Yeah, I grew up, uh, I went to Alameda High School in Lakewood, and uh, back then, kids that were not good with uh, any ball sports took up cycling. Um, so there was a handful of us that completely could not make friends or play with any basketball players. And there's a few of us that raced and rode bikes. I grew up in the same era as a junior. was uh, Jonathan Vodders from here in Denver, oh, a yeah. huge influencer in the cycling world, um, and quite a few other guys. Uh, Robin Thurston went on to start Map My Fitness, Map My Ride. We were all juniors at the same time here in Colorado, and we grew up racing together. And you were all outcasts? No, no, we weren't all outcasts. We just uh, we had each other. <laughs> okay. If we didn't have each other, then we you wouldn't would have had been much. <laughs> and what was the cycling culture like back then? Did it look very different from today? Yeah, absolutely. Back in the—you know, I started racing in 85. Uh, in the 80s, the only people that had road bikes were pretty much— Uh, you know, those special people that had road bikes. You can now go open up anyone's garage and find a $5,000 road bike in there. So it was more of a very specific subculture of people that rode. Now it's pretty much everybody has it and everybody gets it. Um, So growing up in the 80s was definitely, you know, it it was really cool and fun because we were discovering the sport as well.
0: You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with cyclist, turned chef, Bijou Thomas, who has the Little Curry Shop in Denver. More locations are opening up in the city and in Boulder as well. And with Alan Lim, he has written The Feed Zone Table, family-style meals to nourish life and sport. And the family he's thinking about isn't just the nuclear family, but families of athletes that can get together and eat together. Uh, So we have a few of your recipes at CPRnews.org, including one for chunky guacamole.
6: Yeah. Does guacamole really need to be improved upon? (laughs) Ah, good question, my friend. Um, What we found with the Feed Zone books wasn't that, uh, you know, we weren't really reinventing anything. It's all just food. Uh, But a lot of, for us athletes, especially really young guys and young people getting into sport, we were just giving them ideas and more than anything, giving them permission, you know, telling them, hey, it's okay to have really amazing delicious guacamole or it's awesome to have this at lunch or breakfast or dinner or whatever that's actually the first recipe that we cooked and photographed for the feed zone book um, and we finished it with some charred onions on top there's every fresh vegetable you can find we put sweet corn in there sweet peppers a bunch of this a bunch of that the idea was to add texture and layer um, without you know anything synthetic it was just pure beautiful summertime food. And is it
0: purely about texture or are you making it a more well-rounded dish by adding those things to avocado?
6: Uh, for me personally, it's about texture because eating avocado by itself, the texture gets a little bit um, tiring. But if, that's why you know we like chips with avocado, with guac, because the crunchiness allows us to eat more of it. But if you're going to use that as a meal substitute, adding in some fresh uh, sweet corn that bursts a little bit or some coarse salt or some crisp onions, all of a sudden the texture changes, which means you can actually consume more of it for calorie or have it at a different time of day. Mm. So the texture does matter. Yeah, I can imagine eating the corn and
0: having those uh... – Brilliant little explosions in your mouth. Uh, Have you found, though, ingredients that you can add to a dish to boost it for the athlete?
6: Yes. Give me Uh, me some examples. Unicorn dust. Uh, You (laughs) you know, there really is no magic uh, athlete-specific thing out there, at least as far as we're looking at. Um, What it comes down to is if athletes can get—the biggest thing— for anyone doing endurance sports. If you're out there doing an ultramarathon, if you're out there doing your first Ironman, it isn't a matter of finding the right food. Often it turns into, can I eat enough of it to get the calories that I need? So that's where eating food that has an array of textures and a little bit of salt and a little bit of lemon juice for acid, that actually allows you to consume the quantities that you need to get the calories that you need. But, you know, there's anecdotal, um, you know, information on this nutrient or that thing that pops up from week to week to week yeah but at the end of the day it's just find something that you can actually make and eat yourself and be happy with that's pretty much the end of the day the everything that we're coming up with
0: i think of the mixed bean curry we have a recipe for it at cprnews.org out of all the curries you make given that you have the curry shop with your name on it why did you pick the mixed bean curry for the book
6: We have found that um, even people that are heavy meat eaters, uh, lately the trend has been that a couple times a week, a couple times a month, people are eating less meat or looking for some really substantial vegetarian options. The reason I went for the mixed bean one specifically, you can either soak dry beans, make it from scratch, or get good quality canned beans and literally have an amazing curry dish that you can make in about 10 minutes. It's some dry roasted spices, some coconut milk, some fresh chopped peppers and cilantro and some beans. And all of a sudden, you've got this ridiculously beautiful dish.
0: Well, you may have already answered a question that we got from a listener. Grant Berry of Denver asked, what's the best way for a bachelor to make some quick curry?
6: Aha, the old stump the Indian guy portion of the show. (laughs) Um, (laughs) We would never put it that way. (laughs) uh, For anyone cooking with spices at home, uh, whatever, you know, you probably have some sort of a curry mix in your cupboard somewhere. Don't just throw it into your bowl of water or into whatever. Toast it a little bit. You want to begin with a hot pan. Toast it. You'll start smelling all the spices kind of coming around the room. So toast it. No oil. This is just a— You can do both. So either dry toast or a tiny, tiny little bit of oil that kind of brings all the flavor out. Then add in your ginger and garlic and peppers and whatever magic stuff you want to add. And then finally finish with your main ingredient. Ah. It's super simple. Don't overthink it. Uh, But I've made that mistake a lot, just dumping the
0: kind of uncooked curry in the dish. Okay. Very thoughtful.
6: curry and spices this way. They're all just sawdust. They're basically tree bark, uh, you know, seed shells. It's all sawdust. It's all just going to taste bitter. We also heard from
0: someone who describes himself, at least, as a curry expert, Brandon Johnson. Yes, Brandon, I should hire you. Okay. He recommends making a curry lemongrass sauce. Do you ever use a lemongrass?
6: Uh, In Indian food, specifically South Indian, we don't really work with lemongrass. um, But I do love good Thai and Vietnamese food where they do use a lot of lemongrass. It's delicious. It's nice and bright and green and floral. It's beautiful. Well, thank you so
0: much for being with us.
6: Absolutely. Thank you.
0: That is Bijou Thomas. He's the owner of Bijou's Curry Shop in Denver and soon Boulder. He's also the co-author of the new Feed Zone Table Cookbook with Alan Lim. You can find recipes, as I said, and photos of dishes at cprnews.org. That's Colorado Matters for today. Maybe we've left you hungry for more. We'll see you tomorrow. I'm Ryan Warner, CPR News.